Super 70 Sports Podcast. Oh, hell yeah. Ah, yes. Welcome to the Super 70 Sports Podcast. I'm Ricky Cobb, and I've got to say it is great to be back. We've been off for a few weeks, and spring has sprung. Couldn't be any happier today to be talking some baseball. And opening day's right around the corner. My mind is on the national pastime. And my guest today played nine years in the big leagues. Enjoyed his best year probably in 1983 when he hit 274 with 12 home runs and 44 stolen bases. He was a burner. Uh, a friend of mine and one of the really good guys in pro sports. Joining me now on the Super 70 Sports Hotline. Baseball player, broadcaster, movie magnet, and now author, Billy Sample. Billy, is there anything you don't do? Uh, a couple of things, Ricky, but uh, not many. I was most versatile in my senior class, so I'm still trying to live up to it. <laughs> uh, we had a very talented and versatile class. In fact, uh, we had a reunion of, I don't know how many times we've talked about this, and maybe I haven't spoken to you about this, but I was on the losing team in the movie Remember the Titans uh, in real life. Mm -hmm, uh, yes. and, uh, they had an anniversary. Our team has made more out of losing a game than anyone else, and we had an uh, anniversary of the game. I guess it was the 45th anniversary of that game, and six of their members came down, and, and uh, including Herman Boone, who uh, was a Denzel Washington character, or Denzel Washington played him. I guess they both were kind of characters, but... Um, and uh, we made so much out of that. And um, But that's one of the things that I think that lends our versatility, my versatility, in that when I went back and, and saw all the former teammates, and we had probably about 30 guys come back. We only had 37 on the varsity. And, uh, and oh, yeah, you, you played Major League Baseball? Well, good. And this is what I did. I split the atom. Or, or we have some other guys. Okay. <laughs> I'm a lawyer. I, I, I argued in front of the Supreme Court. Or, yeah, we've got two dentists that I know that were on the team. And there's just, everybody was just so impressive. I got a nationally renowned uh, minister um, who was a good friend of mine, Kerry Casey. I don't know. We, we, we sort of went in different directions. But he <laughs> he went the good way and I kind of slithered somewhere else. But um, he's a, a tremendous uh, public speaker. And, and he's um, he was one of the founding fathers of Fathers.com. So we have people like that. And so the stuff that I did was like, yeah, okay, yeah. So you played Major League Ball. Um, and, and it's really an impressive class, an impressive school back in, back in the day. And, heck, my, my first grade teacher going all the way back, uh, Lucy Harmon, she interacted with Thurgood Marshall, the Supreme Court Justice, and George Washington Carver, the, um, the, the botanist, the scientist, the, the noted scientist. Um, so whatever I did was like, yeah, you're supposed to do that. <laughs> We're not impressed. And uh, that's pretty much the way they talked to me back there. You think you're going back? And, nah, you, you were nothing when you were here, and you're still nothing. Uh, okay, so on the subject of versatility, you know, look, I, I'm keeping it on the, on the sports level. Once we start talking about what those other guys that you're mentioning do, they're, you know, that's above my pay grade. I can talk a little sports, but uh, you were a multi-sports standout. Ultimately, obviously, going into baseball uh, professionally, but was that, a, was, was that a tough decision? Because you were a heck of a basketball player, and, and as you mentioned, uh, a football player as well. 
Well, I was a pretty good football player, Ricky, but I don't want to tell anybody I was a good basketball player. <laughs> In fact, I went back for my <laughs> class reunion, a 45th class reunion, a couple of years ago, and uh, they were still teasing me because I was a point I could handle a rock and I could play defense. But um, wow, if I drove the lane and you fouled me, you only helped improve my shot. So they they were teasing me because I would steal the ball from you and go down the court and blow a layup. It took me until maybe three-fourths of the season, my senior year, the only year I started, before I realized that instead of worrying about how hard I was bouncing it off the backboard, just lay it over the rim. I had enough ups to do that, but I'm, I'm not the quickest uh, person or the sharpest tool in the shed. So uh, I was about 15, really, when I decided that for my size, 5'9", and at that time, geez, I don't know, 155, 160, maybe, uh, that I had a better chance of playing football, uh, excuse me, baseball professionally than I did football, uh, even though I thought I was a, a better football player. I was a second-team All-State wide receiver, but we had an All-State quarterback who had a great touch and, and uh, ended up going to Virginia Tech. As a lot of our players went on, uh, we had two players that go to Virginia Tech. We had uh, the aforementioned Kerry Case who went to North Carolina. We had um, our tight end, Charlton Webb, who went to Tennessee, was a guard there and played in one of the bowl games. So we had some talent. But Again, we played against T.C. Williams that year, and they had a lot of talent. Because the two defensive backs that covered me, uh, and covered me well, they both went to Duke and uh, started as freshmen. So not only were they better athletes, but they were a lot smarter than I was. <laughs> well, i got to ask you about the, the Remember the Titans, the film. Is- it's got to be strange to see a film that is based on the real events that you were a part of. What what did you think of that movie? And Hollywood always takes liberties. What are your views on on, on the film, how it was done, and how it portrayed uh, or and embellished uh, real life? Uh, well, Ricky, the only thing that replicated us uh, was that the game was played in Roanoke, Virginia, uh, because you can't no matter how close I, I could tell you the game was or a lot closer than the score, you can't really Hollywood up a 27 and nothing score. We were both uh, undefeated going to that game. Uh, we were both 12-0. and 0. And uh, in the movie, they depicted the, the state final game as playing against Marshall, uh, George Marshall, which was one of their district teams. And uh, evidently, that was the only close game they played that year. It was 1914, the final score. So uh, I, I guess it was as close as they depicted it in the movie. But they shut out eight opponents, including us. We had an early touchdown call back and mounted no offense after that. Uh, they had a stifling defense, and, and I felt it. Uh, the previous game, in the semifinal game, and a 26-21 to 21 victory in Richmond against Douglas Freeman High School, not that I remember that from 45 years ago, uh, I caught seven passes for 117 yards and a touchdown. Uh, in the final game, I caught one pass. I called it back. And, uh, yeah, I was, it, I, it was probably a probably a bullshit flag too, right? No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, probably, yeah, probably. Yeah, the first one of the game. They just want yeah. to get used to throwing the flag out. Uh, but uh, I had I had not gotten used to the hand fighting that you that you have now. That's so common uh, among defensive backs. And one of the reasons is because I hadn't had a defensive back close enough that could do that. They could stay on me to hand fight. But this guy, he was. I think he's now a police commissioner in Alexandria, Virginia. His last name is Cook, I think. And uh, But he, he was hand fighting me, and I hadn't been used to that. So by the time sometimes I cleared his hand, the ball was on me. I remember having one drop, and uh, I probably had more than that. But we we struggled offensively that day, and it was, uh, it was a shame. But I rationalized Ricky by saying that if we had won the game, they couldn't have made the movie. And a lot of people were happy about the movie. <laughs> there you go. Uh, one of the things about 
school year. He played in the game. In fact, he knocked Jesse, the linebacker, he knocked Jesse Lawson, who was the other wide receiver, uh, off the field under the benches. And Jesse was a good-sized wide receiver for the, back in those days, like six, maybe six foot and a half, 180 pounds, knocked him off the field under the benches. When he righted himself, the benches were in his lap. And sometimes you embellish these stories as you get older, but I, I have film somewhere, and actually it is film. Uh, somewhere, and sure enough, Bertier knocked him off the field under the benches. They had a, they had a real good defense. I think Bertier was scheduled to go to Ohio State. Um, Julius Campbell, I think he was going somewhere. I, he might have been going to uh, Ohio State as well. They were going big time, and they had the players that go big time. We had players that go big time too, but they they really, they really put a whipping on us that day. I'm trying to get over it. I still have more. More shrink hours to deal with it. It's only been 45 years. So, uh, okay, one good thing about baseball being your best sport is that nobody lays you out and, uh, you know, knocks you clear under the, the bleachers, right? Um, well, you, have you seen Socha block the plate? <laughs> he had, Socha had the plate blocked on me one time in spring training. And uh, it's spring training, so it is what it is. And Rudy Law caught a ball. Uh, but 
as we're getting into your your professional baseball career, the the book is a year in pinstripes and then some. Uh, tell me about the decision to to put some of this uh, uh, down to paper and, and document your career and some of the some of the interesting things and funny stories that happened along the way. When did you decide that that was something you wanted to do? Well, I had notes around the house for years, and actually 25 years ago or so, I had put together a manuscript, and I'd sent it to one of the publishing companies, and, and one of the editors read it, said it was good, but the people at top didn't feel I had enough name recognition. And I think I said whatever, and uh, before whatever is part of the lexicon. And uh, but and I and I started writing. I was one of the columnists at Baseball Weekly before it became Sports Weekly, and I don't know what it is now. But back in the early 1990s, and I think of all the things that I can do and all the the versatile aspects of my life, writing is probably the one that I really enjoy enjoy the most. I enjoy that medium of expression and. So I had the notes around the house, and I just decided I was going to put them all together and see what I could make of it. It's a relatively short book, and I probably will add more to it in the second edition. But it did everything I wanted it to do. I, I think I wanted people to leave with sort of a smile on their face and, and live through, I guess, me. Uh, I'm not used to saying me as much as I, <laughs> I I did in the in the book, but I guess if it's autobiographical, one has to say me or I. And uh, so I did a lot of that. But I think people will enjoy it. It's a nice little book. It's a nice little stocking stuffer for people. Uh, If you're a Yankees fan, certainly. But I have other, I would say about 45% of the book is about that year in pinstripes, 1985. But uh, there's a lot of Texas Rangers in there. There's a little bit of Atlanta Braves in there. A little bit of my my growing up in there as well. So if you, uh, at the risk of of, um, selling even more, I think it's a nice little book. And I did everything I wanted to do, and I'm, I'm really pleased with it. I had a couple of misspells in there, so when we have the second edition, I have to go back and, and change. I think one of the people, one of the acknowledgments in there, I misspelled a woman's name. And I went, oh, my goodness, I realized that. But And I guess I'll, I can go back in there and change it at some point. But, um, and I'm not even sure if I spelled Orson Welles' name correctly, because there's two E's in there. And I don't want to go back in and look. <laughs> I don't want to, I have yeah. to be ready for this because I'm just going to scream when I see that. And going, no, oh, no, yeah. I misspell it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a little OCD myself. So like I, I, I'm, I'm gonna. That's the first, the first time. Whenever, whenever my first book gets out there, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cringe with every page, just waiting for the first typo because it's gonna kill oh. me. Oh, and I went over it so many times, and I was just watching Turner Classic Movies, which I watch a lot of, and uh, Citizen Kane was on, and I've probably seen that about five times, too, and I thought, oh, no, there's a second E in Wells, and but now I don't want to go and look, but if, I guess I guess other people can go and look for me. <laughs> I'll just have to, I just have to be ready for it now, like, okay, all right. All right, well, if you... If you if you buy the book and you notice that, all right, Billy knows. Okay. Yeah, well, gee, that's all right. Right. You can't. Nobody told me until this point, though. So I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Now, uh, one of the things, uh, the, the many interesting stories in the book, and I can confirm that it's a it's a really enjoyable read, and I would certainly recommend it to to all my listeners. But uh, and, and we won't get to every story in the book, but it will whet people's appetite a little bit. Um, one thing that's really interesting is is your debut, your your major league debut. Uh, was uh, unconventional, I think, to say the least. Yeah, it was a little different. Um, I knew I was going up. Rich Donnelly, my AAA manager and a longtime Major League coach, 
told me about four days before the end of the season, we were in Albuquerque at the time, I played out of Tucson, but I was going up and I thanked him. I figured I did whatever I needed to do to get up. I, I gave myself three to four years of playing in the minors, and I knew I didn't have the temperament to play much more than that. I played rookie ball and skipped A ball barely and got to double A ball. I was so marginal going to double A that I had to carry the manager's golf equipment in my car to Tulsa from <laughs> where we were in, in spring training. And, um, but I, I, uh, I got there when I, I gave myself three, four years and I, and I got there. In, in, in fairness, I mean, you're, you're, you're showing some humility here, but you hit 355 in the minor leagues career. That's, uh, that's raking. Well, thank you. But in, in the big leagues, they have scouting reports and, <laughs> and people who have a little more range. <laughs> oh, that's why they're in the big leagues. And they, they want you to hit the ball hard. I, I, I'm thinking about that bet against uh, Mike Flanagan. And a little breaking ball low and inside. And I turn on it like I turn on it all the time. And, and in the minor leagues, shoot, that's uh, basically between third and short. Big leagues, Ripken not only gets it, he's playing it on his forehand. <laughs> he's not even reaching for it. He's like, uh, yeah, you did just what we wanted you to do. Hit it hard, right? It count. And um, so it, it, it cut down some of my... Uh, some of my hits, but um, but I, the kind of player I was, I had to hit in the minor leagues, and I get hit a fastball, and, um, and and that's probably the easiest way to get to the big leagues if you can hit a fastball. It's a front foot hitter, which is not recommended, but that's just the way I'd learned. You have to keep your hands back, you have to be kind of quick, and, and I was. And um, but yeah, I so I, I hit three. What did I hit that year? Three fifty-two, I think, in AAA, and. Uh, Oh, in double A ball, I hit three forty eight and took an O for thirty seven. I went eleven consecutive games without getting a base hit. So whoever's listening out there, you think you're scuffling and can't make it? <laughs> um, in fact, I, I, I hit so poorly during that stretch, and none of the balls were hit hard. <laughs> of the thirty seven, there were maybe two that were questionable that I hit semi hard. So it was a legit over thirty seven. second base and uh, I forgot to tell you about my second base 
my double A year again, I have the Texas League record for most errors by a second baseman. I wish some young star would come and break that record, but I, I set the bar high. And uh, I had that disease where you not only were my hands a little hard, but I had that disease where I threw a ball away and then I couldn't throw to first anymore. And I was a psychology major, which is scary. And uh, so, you know, it wasn't a very good one. The same uh, disease that had um, Chuck Knobloch and Steve Sachs uh, right. worried for, for uh, quite some time. So they moved me back to the outfield. Actually, I, I played outfield in college. And um, they figured my bat would precede my glove in the major leagues, towards the major leagues, and they were correct. I saw the sample four, and that kind of alarmed me a little bit. <laughs> I think I tugged on somebody's uh, uh, cape and, and asked, uh, does Mr. Hunter know? And Billy Hunter was the manager. Know that I hadn't played second base in a year and a half. What are they doing here? This is an uh, issue. So no, yeah, yeah, a little bit, because I didn't have an infielder's glove. I think they burned those things. I didn't have. I, we had a big bonfire in my gloves. And, um, <laughs> Exorcism. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I remember, yeah, and I remember, so nobody says anything, and I remember Richie Ziss comes to me and says something as we're running just before the start of the game and getting loose, and he said, it's just like AAA, meaning don't get too excited about it, and I thought that was nice, a vuncular thing to say for Richie, and um, and I wasn't really, I didn't lack confidence, I, I, I knew that I could play a little bit, but uh, the second base kind of bothered me. And uh, just before, maybe I would say five to seven minutes before the start of the game, Billy Hunter calls me over, and he, he explains why I was uh, in the lineup at second base. And what they wanted to do was give switch-hitting Bump Wills, the second baseman, uh, a, a little break from the right side because they felt he was struggling a little bit from his right side, and we were facing a left-hander, Jerry Augustine, that night. So, okay, now it makes sense. So, no matter what I did, Bump was going into the game. I don't even know if you can do that. I, for some reason, I wasn't even sure that was legal. But um, anyway, we got away with it. And um, I let off the game. First pitch, sinker low and outside. I drove in the right center field. Sixto Lescano, the right fielder, dove. It went off his glove. I'm on first base. Cheshire Caddy and Grin. Um, I couldn't stop grinning. And here comes Bump to pinch run for me. And my day was over. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what, what somebody like Bob Euchre thought when we saw they must have thought I twisted on an ankle or something going to first base or something. But yeah, that was. Uh, I'm not sure many people have had that kind of debut, but it was. Uh, it was mine, and it was nice. And and uh, and I think Milwaukee's uh, has a, a soft spot in my heart. I hit. I think I hit uh, the Brewers better than I did any other team. Hey, all I know is you. Uh, you went to sleep that night with a 1,000 career big league average. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I had nothing but downhill to go after that. <laughs> well, I got to ask you, I had Larry uh, Parrish on the podcast. LP! <laughs> LP was on a few, a couple of episodes ago, and uh, really just by chance, uh, I uh, found out that he had a pretty, pretty intense fear of flying during his career. And uh, was asking him about that. I thought, oh, I got to follow up on this. And so uh, he was talking about a flight that uh, the Rangers were taking to <laughs> to Minnesota. To Minnesota, <laughs> uh, when the the hydraulics failed. Blew it, yeah. Yeah. So, um, what are your recollections? Because one of the first things I thought when I got off the phone with him is uh, B- Billy Sample may have been on that. Flight. So I, I kind of did the math because uh, he was talking about Mickey Rivers and Charlie Huff on that flight, and I thought, yeah, Billy, Billy was on that flight probably. So, 
Uh, what are your memories of that? Uh, what was uh, expected to be an uneventful flight uh, that became eventful? Well, Ricky, actually, I'm, I might have to include that in my uh, second edition here. That was, that was good. Thank you for reminding me. Uh, yeah, it lost hydraulic fluid. Uh, uh, upon takeoff, really, I think they, they knew for a long time that we were in trouble. And it was a commercial flight, and we probably flew commercial with the Rangers more than we needed to, but uh, they were cost-cutting measures by doing that. And I think in a way, because we were on the flight, it kind of calmed all the other passengers down, too, because uh, we were kind of crazy, and um, and I'm kind of crazy in a way. And And my first thought was, when it appeared that we were going down, that the sports writers who had in those days would travel with us most often were not on the flight and I was upset thinking oh my goodness they've been killing me when I'm alive and they're going to kill me after I'm dead too <laughs> and, uh, and uh, so we had guys and I knew they were serious because the, the flight attendants had this this ghost white look on their faces like this is something they trained for but they didn't really think it was going to come to fruition like this and um, and some of the guys in back chief back then you could smoke on the plane and I remember guys were uh, some of the guys who didn't smoke were smoking <laughs> <laughs> well, there's never a time for it oh jeez I'm just I'd forgotten that I've got people that would well might miss me <laughs> so, so I'm just I was kind of enjoying the moment and then um, but everybody was serious and we had to put our heads down and, and they took our shoes and, and uh, the, as we were approaching they had the the um, you could see the fire trucks along the along the way, and uh, but it was um, I, I I do think that because of the way we were that we calmed everybody else down a little bit because I don't know I I just I, I guess I am crazy that way because it just didn't bother me as much as I think you know I'm sure it didn't bother me as much as it did Larry and, and maybe a few others but we just went on business as usual like, okay yeah we're gonna go down okay fine. All right, well, what's your hand? <laughs> Not a full house? I got four of a kind. What you... <laughs> and we just kept going on like that. But, yeah, it was it was a serious, it's probably as serious as I've been on a plane where it, it appeared that there was imminent danger. And then at the end, and this was so surreal, the, the pilot said, <laughs> this is <laughs> this is the end of the, end of, how did he say that? This is the uh, the final. This is the final destination of flight, whatever it was. And I thought, wow, he must be a comedian. Cause <laughs> he said, but he said that before we landed, as we were approaching the runway. He said, this is the final destination of flight five, 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 three. <laughs> right. You got the, the Grim Reaper, uh, you know, in the cockpit. <laughs> and it, was, it fits so much into what the, the, the attitude that a lot of the players had, including me. Okay, yeah, all right. Well, all right, here we go. Okay. So was the landing just like basically normal? I mean, what was it? Just like oh, and I we think landed. It locked. I think the the uh, wings, uh, the wings, the uh, the wheels locked. Okay. And, uh, yeah, I think that's what. I, because they weren't sure if if they didn't lock because we lost the fluid, then we would have skidded on the the belly of the plane, and then don't tell it what happens after right. that. But um, yeah, I don't know. I guess you get used to crucial situations or, or situations with pressure so you don't you don't show it quite as much maybe or you don't think about it as much because you're you're so acclimated to it and uh but it was i i, <laughs> I look back on it and laugh now well i was laughing then so i, I, I was just 
That's not that's not justice. Yeah, that's uh, right. <laughs> so let, let, let me jump ahead to, uh, or maybe jump back, actually. Uh, I think jump back uh, chronologically to uh, the, the strike year of 1981, when, as you mentioned in the book, you uh, spent the downtime, at least uh, the, part of the downtime, uh, as a disc jockey in Dallas. Um, it seems like you really enjoyed that uh, from the book. What was that like? And... Uh, what kind of songs, what kind of tunes were on the uh, the Billy Sample playlist in those days? <laughs> well, <laughs> Ricky, I played whatever they told me to play. It was a middle-of-the-road kind of uh, station. I think it was a Mormon-owned station in Dallas, I, I believe. And it was more of, um, oh, geez, Winwood was my last song, I remember. While you while you see the chance, while you get the chance, uh, you had a long... Uh, oh, yeah, while you see a chance, sure. While you see a chance, it had a long... They don't call them ramps anymore, but it was... Uh, music before the the, the words, and uh, so I, I had an opportunity to thank everybody, and, and especially Brent Lewis, who was the sports anchor at the station, was later the sports anchor at um, I think it was a CBS affiliate on TV. So he sat in with, with me one day and uh, and just took off after about I don't know an hour or two, and left me there to do the boards and all and check the the satellite and all that kind of stuff. One time we did have some silence. I went to the bathroom. A little bit too long. <laughs> My song was not long enough. <laughs> it's in the middle of the day, <laughs> and I didn't make any friends with that. But um, it was fun. It was something. It was something I, that I, I wish I had practiced a little bit uh, more. Uh, but by the end of my stint there, after the fifty days, uh, I got to be just as obnoxious as any other disc jockey talking all through the songs and stuff. So, but it's just something else to put to put on the resume and and to have fun with it. But actually. I, I had uh, that's I had a um, a minute a night wrap up um, on that station, so that's how I started there. And they figured since they were paying me anyway, they might as well get get some work out of me because they didn't want to pay me and not have me do anything. So that's where the the disc jockey part came in. All right, one more Rangers question. I realize the book is uh, is is not uh, titled uh, you know a year uh, the, the years with the Rangers uh, and then some. So I'm going to get to New York, but um, a couple of Hall of Famers that you played behind in Texas, uh, Fer- Fergie Jenkins and and Gaylord Perry. Uh, what was it like playing behind those guys and seeing the way they they went about their business? I mean, two of the Two of the greatest pitchers, uh, certainly, uh, that the game has ever seen. Well, Fergie has tremendous control. Uh, 3,000 or more strikeouts, uh, fewer than 1,000 walks. I tell people he could hit a gnat on the on the butt, uh, hovering over the outside corner on either cheek. Uh, he had that kind of control and, um, uh, and a great teammate to me. Uh, he, he was tremendous the way he treated the younger players. Um, we had a number of younger players coming up at that time in the late 70s. Um, Danny Darwin, Dave Rasich, um, oh, uh, Pat Putnam, who was already there, uh, Gary Gray, a uh, few younger players. I know I'm missing somebody out of the younger players. Uh, LaRue Washington, and, uh, and he treated everybody uh, tremendously well. And, uh, and I'll always remember that. In fact, I tell Fergie, or I, if I don't see Fergie to tell him, then I'll tell somebody that We'll talk to Fergie soon, and I'll tell him to, that I still remember how well he treated us and thank him again for that. Fergie was the first Hall of Famer that I interviewed for my book, and uh, 
Yeah, I can tell you just from the, the small amount of time that I spent talking to him, I mean, what a class act he is. Alleged. Alleged uh, foreign substance. Uh, I don't know if it was foreign, though. I think it was U.S. made. But um, (laughs) when he was, (laughs) he wouldn't he wouldn't apply it until he got into the the height of his windup. So you really can't ask for the ball at that point. It was how efficient he was at at throwing the spitter. And uh, Fergie, um, Fergie can be a little hard on young players. And uh, he, he, he we. one thing to be a baseball player it's another thing to be a professional baseball player it's another thing to be a major league baseball player and it's something else to be a yankee once a yankee always a yankee and it puts you in a pretty special fraternity what was it like going to new york being a part of that environment and and not just being a yankee but being there with george and billy martin and everything that goes with playing baseball in the media capital of the world? Well, growing up in southwest Virginia, as I did back in those days, the only game I got to see was the game of the week. And even in the Yankees' down years, because of the market, you got to see them a disproportionate amount of time. And so I would see Tony Kubek or Bobby Richardson or or whoever. And, um, And to me, it was really flattering to have interacted with these people later on in life. Um, to have to speak behind Bobby Richardson of the function. <laughs> I said, that's not happening again. Because he's like this evangelical minister where he can talk 45 minutes and not say an and ah. Uh. And, um, or Tony Kubak, who I broadcasted at the same time that Tony was. And, and you couldn't beat Tony to the ballpark. I don't care what time you showed up at the ballpark, Tony was there. One day I consciously tried to get to the ballpark before Tony. And I was ready to exalt, and there Tony was reading the newspaper. Um, Joe Pepitone will bust on me at charity functions in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area like we were teammates. And I was seven years old when he was first in the big league. So uh, when they accept you like that, that's just really, uh, I, I can't tell you how, how good that makes you feel for somebody in this very select fraternity uh, to accept you as a member. It reminds me a little bit of when uh, my first full season, the following year in 1979, we were at Yankee Stadium opening up the season, no, opening up our road trip. We had played a couple of games at home, and maybe a couple of series at home. Uh, and I was probably eight for, I don't know, 21, 22, whatever it was, it was four something up on the scoreboard. And Munson comes from behind the plate and, uh, oh, we've got a 400 hitter here. We've got to be, be careful, watch out, we've got a 400 hitter. And what he was doing was just welcoming to the fraternity, which was really nice, as I grounded out the shortstop the next two times. Um, but it, I, I, to have. 
have that kind of acceptance for, for people who have uh, achieved so much in the game and to have accepted you as a member of that fraternity. And, and, uh, and that, that's just, I, I can't say enough about that. And I, I hope that I did that to some of the younger players um, as they were coming up. I, I tried to treat the younger players who were coming up, the Curtis Wilkerson's and the, and the Tommy Dunbar's, the late Tommy Dunbar now, and um, as well as some of the people treated me when I was coming up like Fergie. So uh, that part was good. Uh, about the Yankees, I got traded in spring training. And at that time, the Rangers were playing in Pompano Beach, or training in Pompano Beach, and the Yankees were in Fort Lauderdale, so they're neighboring cities. Uh, so I didn't have to go anywhere. Um, and, and when I went to uh, to report to the Yankees, we'd actually had a day of workouts uh, with the Rangers, and the Yankees hadn't opened their camp yet. So I, I go over and have my little impromptu mini press conference, and then uh, George comes over and welcomes me to the club, which I thought was really nice. I was I wasn't Ricky Henderson or anybody coming over, so that, that was a nice gesture, and I appreciated that. And uh, but I knew I wasn't going to get a lot of playing time. They had Ricky, uh, Ken Griffey Sr., and Dave Winfield got the bulk of the playing time, and I would get whatever playing time uh, against the left-handed starter. But I'd reached that point in my career where I just wanted to be on a World Series winning team or play in the postseason or something along those lines. And that gave me the best chance to to do that. We won 97 games that year, but Toronto won 99. And there was always something going on, it seemed. And you could tell when George was around, you could cut the tension with a knife, it seemed. But it was, um, I think sometimes as a visitor, you you wonder what it's like over there because you hear a lot about what the Yankees are like. And uh, But to be there... Uh, in the mix of it, it was just something going on every day, it seemed. I told one of the reporters that they didn't have to work on a story. Stories just evolved in front of their eyes, and uh, that was the way that year. So it gave me a lot of material, I think, for that season. I would say the book is probably, if you've read it, Ricky, it's probably about 45% uh, New York Yankees, 35% Texas Rangers, and a little bit of uh, a few other things uh, in it. But there was a lot going on that year. And um, it was a fun year. It was, it was fun in a way, and, and it was um, hectic in a way. Uh, and I'm glad I had the opportunity to, to play that year um, with some of the most talented players in the game. And uh, and when you grow up watching some of those people uh, and then have an opportunity to be in pinstripes, I think it was a little special, too. Well, when you were uh, traded in spring training of, of, of 85, the manager was, was Yogi Berra. Right. And, of course, Yogi got uh, fired uh, early in the season in April. And, uh, of course, who would George bring back? It's the 1980s. He brings back He brings back Billy Martin. I don't, I'm not sure wh- which tour of duty that was for Billy at that point. Uh, but uh, we, were, we were up around his third or fourth stint, probably, uh, by 85. Um, what was your relationship like with Billy and what was Billy like as a manager? Because if you're talking about controversial figures uh, in baseball in the 1970s and 80s, and even going back to his playing days, I mean, <laughs> drama uh, seemed to follow Billy wherever he went. Well, he was a great tactician. Uh, I think he knew the game uh, extremely well. He knew personalities in the game. He knew the umpires and what they liked and didn't like. Uh, he had that part of the game managed extremely well. He played every game a little bit like the seventh game of the World Series, so there's not a lot of belief in delayed gratification. You, you win this uh, now, and we'll worry about it later later. 
reliever to bring in who hadn't pitched in three weeks. Well, sometimes if you hadn't pitched in three weeks, you're not going to be quite as sharp as, as you would if you had regular pitching time. But um, I don't know. I made four, I said four times in the book, but actually I, I saw there was a fifth time that a Billy Martin story uh, made somebody else's uh, book. And um, Billy had told Goose to hit me in the head in spring training. At least this is uh, what Goose told me. Uh, I was at this point. I was broadcasting for the Braves, and Goose was pitching for the Padres. He calls me under under the bleachers, and they asked me how did uh, Billy and I get along. And I said, Well, he didn't. He didn't like me. I <laughs> can get in line, but I didn't dislike him. And uh, and I and then Goose went on to tell me why he had asked me that question. And I I thank Goose for not doing it. I I thought maybe Goose had his timelines off a little bit, but Goose gave me the look like I've been internalizing this way too much. And uh, and it really bothered him. In fact, if you if you if he had a chance to interview Goose, just bring it up again. He'll 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 get his uh, hair standing up on the back of his neck too. I think he might have felt that either Billy was testing him, or, or I, I don't know what what the, what the reason was. But I just thanked him for not doing it. I don't know. I, I might have been so young. He just hit me in the head, split the helmet, not gone down the first, not thought anything about it. But uh, you never know because Goose is kind of hard to pick up at. Uh, and he's throwing it like 96, 98, and running into a right-handed hitter. I didn't mind batting against Goose, although I didn't do particularly well. But it was uh, bunning off of him. Oh, my goodness. You've got to have more more testosterone than I usually brought to the ballpark <laughs> to do that. Well, you mentioned in the... <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned in the book, uh, you know, and, and I'm sure a lot of the, the listeners are going to remember uh, when Goose hit Ron Say in, in the head oh, yeah. in, I think, the 81 series. And, I mean, uh-huh. that's a, the, the baseball is a lethal weapon in Goose yeah, Gossage's hand. Two inches hand. lower, he's a dead man. Two inches uh, lower on the temple, he's gone. That just, and that's, whew, that was kind of scary. Um, and, and you wonder, and I wonder about athletics in general, the safety of it, because, what, Jock Pott was the, the first goalie to really use a mask. That was in 1960. I'm going, are you kidding me? It took that long? That yeah, amazes I, me. I, I know. I know. Well, and for baseball not to not have a helmet, I think Don Zimmer, who was another one of my uh, former managers, uh, Zim got hit in the head in 51 and 54, I think. And 51, one of them, he had to have a plate in his head. And I forget which one it was, but I think that kind of issued in the the, uh, the protective device inside the hat. It still didn't have a helmet. You just had this little piece of plastic inside the hat. It still doesn't protect your ears. It still doesn't protect your your temple, and not much of it. And um, yeah, so there. And and football players without face masks until the 1950s. Wow, those big old brogan shoes we used to wear back in the day. <laughs> you just you just you could take out all your teeth just with, with one kick. Can you imagine playing goalie without without a mask? How did those guys How did those guys survive? And, and, and in baseball, it's a it's a wonder. I mean, one major league player killed by a by a pitch ball, Ray Chapman, and I think it was nineteen nineteen. It's it's really amazing. As, as many years as they went without any type of protection at all, other than wool, <laughs> that, that nobody else got done. Yeah, and especially back in those days that that you play those afternoon games and get dark and you couldn't see and the ball they weren't changing balls like they do now and it's really amazing nobody got killed other than Chapman. I think a few people were killed in the minor leagues, which you can imagine the lighting was even worse in the minor leagues. Um, but 
one person in the major leagues all those years. And uh, yeah, I, I guess our creator is a is a, a baseball fan or, or athletic fan because um, there are so many times I think people could get killed. Well, I guess they did get killed in, right. in football in college football because they. I think it was during the uh, Teddy Roosevelt administration that they started passing down rules and 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 uh, and laws to protect the players in certain areas. Well, you know, this this is a little bit of a divergence, but but fans and foul balls, for that matter. You know, I believe only one fan has ever been killed by a foul ball at a major league game, and it was uh, I think it was at Dodger Stadium in 1970. Manny Mota hit a uh, hit a liner. Uh, into the stands and hit a teenage boy, and he he died a couple of days later. Um, that's also surprising to me. I mean, as many rocket shots as get hit into the stands, and children and 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 pe- people who aren't paying attention really to what's going on on the field. It's, I think that's almost even uh, a bigger shock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember thinking about that at Vero Beach. Nobody plays there now, but. But when the Dodgers are there all those years, and there is no protection. This is an older part of the population, too. And you have a check swing and, and one of those hazy days there with no protection on the sides. I, I don't know how people have survived that and not getting, have gotten seriously hurt or, or killed like you're, you're talking about. So there must be some kind of spirit or, uh, that looks over the game that way because, yeah, just just hooking a ball. You, I'm thinking about somebody like Don Baylor hooking a ball into the stands. Right. My goodness. Oh. I, I, I tell you what, when I was broadcasting, the ball came my way. I got out of the way. <laughs> it, amaz- it amazes me the fans will make some of the greatest catches and bare hand catches and, and make catches with kids in their hands and babies in their hands. I'm going, wow, those are the real athletes. I need to trade, I need to trade places. <laughs> so that year in New York, I mean, what a good, what a really good team that was. Uh, D- Don Mattingly was uh, at his best at that point in time, and and you actually tell a really uh, uh, fun story uh, in the book about Mattingly. And at that point in time, Mattingly was maybe the best hitter in baseball. Uh, and if he wasn't, uh, you, you wouldn't need too many fingers to count the guys who were better. Um, and I believe you tell the story. I want to say it was Edwin Nunez. Yeah, it was Edwin Nunez. Yeah, Donnie, Donnie had won the batting title the year before. He and Winfield, went, uh, teammates, went down the stretch uh, until the last day, actually, uh, until Manley won the uh, batting title. And in '85, he won the uh, MVP of the league. And uh, he, he did some surreal things in '85, uh, which probably is a juxtaposition makes the, the Edwin Nunez story even better because Nunez had. I had a little success against Donnie, and um, and he challenged Donnie at, at some point with um, a, a really nasty breaking ball, and Donnie fouled it off. And you can almost see Nunez say, "Well, that's my best breaking ball. I'm not going to waste it uh, throwing it to you again." And he just threw fastball, fastball, fastball. He ended up striking Manningly out, and Donnie came back to the dugout, and uh, he was excited, and he said, I, "I loved it. He challenged me. I loved it." And I thought, "Wow, this guy's going so good this year." But he likes to challenge. <laughs> well, because most of the time he's succeeding through that challenge. Mm-hmm. I think he batted three forty-five that year, uh, thirty-five homers under. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I want to say it was like thirty-five homers, one hundred and forty-five ribbies. And um, yeah, that's we right. had a good setup there with with Henderson leading off and Randolph batting second. But but Donnie was just oh my goodness, what a what a season! And I had seen him as an opponent uh, back when he was wiring number 46 and I knew that
that he, he had some ability, and then to see it on a day-to-day basis, that was really special. Now, you uh, mentioned in the book, that's the year that the Billy uh, got into the uh, <laughs> epic brawl with Eddie Whitson, and uh, Billy wound up with a, with a broken arm uh, out of that. I think that happened late in the season. Uh, yeah, I want to say it was August, yeah. And, and you weren't, you mentioned in the book that you weren't present for that, but that you had been present for uh, other things that you saw that, that led you to understand very well how uh, things could get out of hand pretty quickly with Billy uh, after hours. Yeah, the night before I was in the bar, and, and somebody and somebody's ready to throw hands then, and I thought, wow, that happened. I think when you're with people like that, and I've been with teammates like that, that, that are something happens and it happens so quickly you didn't really anticipate it happening all of a sudden people are throwing hands or around you and you're hoping to break up stuff and not get hit at the same time and i think billy had that there was something about being around him that things could escalate in just a heartbeat and it was one of those situations the night before and i forgot exactly what had happened but i saw that getting ready to happen and uh, and it somehow it, it passed over but it, it could have been where the following night may not have happened. I guess it would have been better if Billy had gotten, well, no, would it have been better to fight somebody who's not a player <laughs> or fight somebody that's a player? I imagine it wasn't Ed Whitson or Billy. I know it wasn't Billy's uh, first fight, and I don't think it was Ed's first fight either. So uh, you had uh, a pretty good mixture there of things that could happen, a lot of combustion possibilities there, and, and it combusted. And um, and they had they were hooking, from what I understand, they got off the elevator and... and <laughs> Imagine you're fighting, and all of a sudden you get off the elevator, and there's your your, your competitor again, and you start fighting some more, and I'm going, oh my goodness! But um, uh, those things happen, and I guess Whitson was a little mad, and and it was a tough year for Eddie because um, um, he got pretty good free agent money back then. I think he was eight hundred thousand back then. Eight hundred thousand was good money, uh, and um, he. I don't know. He, he got beat up his first game in Boston, and it seemed like it never quite righted itself after that. And it took him a long time. And I, I and Ed's a kind of a nice country boy from Eastern Tennessee, and and I think New York was a little di- well. New York could be a little different for a lot of us, but um, it was probably a lot tougher going from San Diego to New York than it would have been anywhere else. And and, um, and it just took him a while to get acclimated, and then it took him a while to to turn it on and he won some games and towards the end of it I think it, it, the people welcomed him a little better but uh, at that point it was probably just a little gun shy uh, when you have tax in your driveway from people <laughs> yeah, kind, of, kind of a little alarming I would imagine that you know that people not only know where you live but have the audacity to, to try to puncture your tires that wasn't happening in San Diego uh, no I, I'm thinking not no no <laughs> And Eddie went, and Eddie, had the, and Eddie went back to San Diego after that, and put up a number of good years. Yeah, so yeah, probably yeah. happy to be back. Yeah, I would think of the two places that were extremely different. San Diego and New York might be those two, uh, <laughs> because how can you not like San Diego? <laughs> yeah, San Diego's got a lot going for. I mean, you know, even even without the absence of tax, San, San, San Diego's pretty good. Uh, yeah, I think I'll go down to the beaches of La Jolla and uh, check out the. I'll go to New York and and um, have to fight my way to get to the stadium. <laughs> hmm, let me think. Um, 
so one thing that you mentioned in the book in passing that uh, that I found uh, pretty interesting is you suggested that umpiring might be better in the minor leagues. Yes, it was. Uh, without a doubt, it was. Um, and, and granted, they're trying to get somewhere. Uh, it's it's tougher because in the minor leagues, you've got two uh, that have to control so much of the game. And I don't know how many times there's a uh, umpire evaluator down there. I was on a committee uh, for five years that evaluated major league umpires, and I never got the sense that that the umpires and the minors on their way up uh, really were seen that much. And you might have to uh, have a game or two where there aren't good games for you, and that's the only time your evaluator is there. Because sometimes in the major leagues, I'd wonder, how does this guy get through <laughs> Yeah. They were really bad. They were really not very good. And um, and, and then I realized afterwards, okay, well, that's how it, it happened or could happen because um, they don't get watched uh, that much by somebody in the position of authority. And and, and you could be subjective after the, how you look, um, um, the, the kind things you say when you, the evaluator takes you out to dinner, that, that kind of thing. So, um, But, yeah, it, it was it was noticeably different in the minor leagues. Well, you said you spent five years in uh, doing evaluations. Like, what went into that? Because I, because I'm not really familiar with how that's done, and I doubt that uh, just about any of the listeners are either. Well, the way I did it, Ricky, is that I would find a place behind the home plate or whatever stadium I was working. Most of the times, I, I, since I live in Northeast Jersey, I work out of the Shea or Yankee Stadium. But I, I'd also go up and down the Eastern Seaboard if I needed to balance out the number of times I'd see an individual umpire or crew, I would get right behind the plate. I'd have binoculars so I could tell where the ball crossed the plate horizontally. Uh, I would try to get, uh, and most of the places would have a TV monitor, and if I could talk to a producer and get as many low third or low first shots so I could see where it crosses vertically, where it crossed uh, over the knees or uh, behind the knees or lower the knees or, or, or how high it would go. And I could pretty much dissect, okay, it's over the plate, it caught the outside third, and it's knee high. Okay, that's a strike. And that's the way I kind of confirmed that because I thought most of, of the action was behind the plate, uh, calling balls and strikes. But I'd also have um, the ability to see the umpires and how they rotated, who was supposed to go where, and, and who was uh, and, and whether or not the calls were correct or not or if somebody was out of position. And I did that for five years. I, I uh, at one time, I think at the time I was uh, reporting to uh, Lynn Coleman and Ashley Cresden at the time, and then Sandy Alderson, and and I would give Sandy my recommendation on who I thought should go to the postseason and which uh, level, whether it's division series or league championship series or World Series. And I want to say that one year Sandy used about I don't know, eighty-five to ninety percent of the people that I had recommended on. Um, for uh, different positions, which made me feel good uh, to um, to adhere to it and to and to assign uh, accordingly, uh, I felt pretty good about that. Now, without naming names, because uh, I'm I'm not trying to put you in that position, um, were there some umpires that you you felt like personalities became a factor in in how they called the game? Uh, with me, or just in general? In general. Well, I think there's some umpires that that look um, that their look is a little more important than their judgment, or, or maybe there could be a better balance with that. Um, some umpires like to 
seem to me that they like a certain style, a certain um, image, uh, and maybe that clouds their judgment every once in a while. But for the most part, I think the empires are conscientious about uh, making the proper call. And, and um, uh, But there's some that I just, at my time, I think they're better now. But it's still, I see balls and strikes. I'm going, oh, that was... We need to have a robot behind. <laughs> well, l- let me ask you where you stand on that. Well, how do you feel about replay as a concept, and how do you feel about replay as it's being implemented right now? Uh, as a concept, I- I'm I'm happy with it. I, I like to get it right. Uh, I think that ultimately is what an arbiter is supposed to do. And this is part of uh, helping the arbiter make the, the proper decision. And um, I, I think it tweak it a little bit, I guess, all the time. I don't know if I want to see it go any further. But uh, And sometimes you have to realize that the angles you're, you're going to get aren't always. There's so many angles in baseball that I'm not sure the replay always gives the best angle. Um, it's not like you can put a camera on the goal line in football and tell when somebody's going over the goal line when the ball is on the white line or something like that. But for the most part, I'm, I'm pleased with it. I I, uh, I do think they, they should get a little bit better in balls and strikes. And that, that would be my biggest concern because now that's the only thing that's in question is balls and strikes. Pretty much uh, there's not an argument anywhere else or not much of one. So the next thing is the balls and strikes have to be a little more consistent because uh, you don't want like, like your, like your kid tells you, yeah, well, the umpire was bad, and you tell him, no, the umpire has nothing to do with the game. But no, that's not true. As you get older, sometimes the umpire does have something to do in the outcome of the game, and uh, if they miss a call, and I've seen calls where I thought, ooh, jeez, that really. I'm not talking about the difference in a one-one pitch, whether it's two-one or one-two, but uh, the strike three calls that are like four balls off the plate. I mean, you've got to be better than that. Right. Like I remember that one playoff game. I think it was Eric Gregg. Uh, yeah. It may have been yeah. Levon Hernandez. And I, Eric right. Gregg was like, um, and I don't know. He there were like he doubled the strike zone that day. It was crazy. Well, it, it certainly seemed that way. And, and I don't know. I, I, I wish that we could go back and use that and sort of um, have today's technology to see because everybody's concept is that Eric was well off the plate, and I think everybody felt he was well off the plate. But I'd like to see, uh, if uh, if I could, if it was possible to see just how off the plate Eric appeared to be that, or actually was that, that day that he appeared to be well off the plate that day. Do you think... And, and that, that had a bearing on the outcome of the game. It, it's oh, like yeah. It seemed that way, yeah. Do, do, do you think automating it is, is a realistic direction to go? I don't know how you do it uh, logistically, but... Um, experiment with it doesn't bother me <laughs> yeah i want to get it right it uh, seems to work great in tennis right like the way that they, they have the technology to determine right where the ball bounced and whether it was on the line right um, right are they thinking about doing that in the minor leagues have they started doing that in the minor leagues i am not aware if they have i don't think so but oh, okay. may, but that would be a great place to to have a pilot in, in, yeah yeah and see if and, it, and it wouldn't You'd be able to implement it and not have to go to the union to to get their approval, which would be, I, I would imagine, be hard to get. So. All right. Well, now before I get into the movie, because I want to talk about Reunion One Hundred Eight as well. I, I 
w- one of the parts of your career that I don't want to gloss over is uh, is your experiences in, in broadcasting. And I remember uh, as a teenager, I don't want to make you feel old, but I remember as a teenager I'll be old. <laughs> watching you on uh, on TBS. Um, calling Braves games with Skip Carey and, of course, any of us that had cable TV in the 80s and were baseball fans, Skip Carey, Pete Van Weeren, Ernie Johnson, those are those are names that uh, you're going to remember fondly probably. What, what was it like breaking into broadcasting and particularly working with Skip Carey and, and those guys? Because Skip just seemed like, uh, he, certainly as an announcer, he, he gave the impression that he would just be a fun guy to hang out with. And he was. Speaking of writing, uh, you wrote uh, a really uh, a really funny 
and I, I think deceptively uh, uh, thoughtful film with uh, Reunion 108, which I want to say came out in 2013. Is that right? Yes, at the end of 20. We had it in about five theaters, and uh, we needed a few more people to show up, even in my hometown, which I was behind the PR for, and even where I live here in Jersey. Uh, but we had a really good premiere. I realize now how difficult it is to produce an indie film, especially if you don't have immediate distribution. Um, but the secondary market is still there. I, I still, right now, you can only buy it uh, the hard copy because Amazon changed their format, and I've got to go back in and and do things like get the uh, aspect ratio down to sixteen point nine to put it back on to um, the instant download, where a lot of people watch it off the instant download too. So. Uh, by the end of the month, uh, I should have that back. But you can still purchase it on on um, the hard copy on Amazon. And uh, But it, it was fun. It was a little bit like uh, having notes around the house again. And there was, there were a few things that I wanted to do, and I don't know, Ricky, sometimes I, I wonder if that was the right thing to do, but I knew that if I didn't go ahead and try to produce the screenplay that I would wonder about it the rest of my life. And uh, so I'm glad I did. It did what I wanted it to do, uh, the movie. Uh, it's it's in your face, and it's a strong R. In fact, when the person from the uh, motion picture, uh, the classification board, called me, who was a big baseball fan, and he really appreciated the movie and liked it, called me and told me that it was a strong R. I, just, I was just jumping so happy around the house because I thought I had a chance of being NC-17. I said, I'm never going to sell a copy of this movie. But it's a... Uh, it's, 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 it's a little bit behind the scenes. It's uh, uh, it's uh, people tell you to write what you know, and I wrote what I knew. I, I can I can go from teetotaler to whatever is on the other end of it and, and fit in well. And so this has a more of a it's probably more of a Texas Ranger kind of clubhouse as opposed to an Atlanta Braves kind of clubhouse. Uh, the Rangers had some strong personalities. Um, if you were shy or you got your feelings hurt easy <laughs> you didn't want to be in Texas oh my goodness because that bus ride sometimes from the tarmac after you land to the hotel which is probably in most places about 50 minutes that could be some of the brutal <laughs> most okay. brutal 50 minutes in the world who, who were, so who were the biggest ball breakers Bye. 
were quiet for a while, you say, well, okay, I'm just going to sit here and be quiet. And, and maybe that I won't laugh, or I won't laugh at anybody's jokes or anything. <laughs> It'll catch you. Oh, yeah, yeah, cop, uh, guess what? Oh, oh, you thought you were getting away, didn't you? Uh-huh, well, we got ten minutes. We're going to devote that to you. <laughs> The film itself has, it's really a, it's a series of vignettes, right? I mean, much of it. The premise, if you could kind of take my audience through the premise, the setup of uh, what really drives the film forward, because it's a unique screenplay that you have for this. Well, uh, I'll start again saying it's a strong R, strong uh, R for pervasive sex references, strong crude dialogue, and some strong sexuality or something like that. So you have to go in there with that kind of premise. Okay, you know there are going to be some things in there that uh, you may not want the whole audience to see. Um, because that's what I grew up, that's what I knew. And um, But uh, to set it up, there, and I used the minor leagues because I didn't want to deal with having the, anybody think, well, that's a major league guy, this is a major league guy, plus I had a little more freedom uh, with my supposed minor league team. So there are two generations of minor league players returning to the site where both of them won a championship in the minors. Uh, one generation's probably eh, 25 to 35 in age, and the second generation, the older generation, in that 50 to 60-year-old range, um, the second part so I could play in a movie. <laughs> so, and I was in it way too much. I wasn't. It wasn't designed for me to be in a movie as much. I was going to sort of make my uh, Alfred Hitchcock cameo but it ended up being in it way too much. But So we, we flash back to um, some of the scenes from their previous days, uh, and there are some people that have some conflict amongst themselves in this scene, as, uh, in, in this setting as well. So we have about, I, I guess you're right, probably about 14, depending on how you define a vignette, we probably have 14 to 15 vignettes. Um, all of my kids were in a movie, and, and I have no idea how my daughter... Uh, acquiesced to be in a movie because she's an ordained minister now. My two boys are in, in the movie as well. I still owe one of my sons a whole bunch of money because he's one of the producers. And uh, but it did everything I wanted it to do. It, it was it's satirical. That the people who have criticized it are, and I understand why. Uh, but you have to go in knowing that it's that kind of movie. It's you're getting a fly on the wall. Uh, view of what a clubhouse is, and it's not much different than the clubhouses in the big leagues. Um, in fact, uh, of the stories, I would say of the 14, 15 stories, four of them, at least four of them, are mine, mine personally. <laughs> and uh, so I know they're true. Uh, they may not have been in the major leagues, some were in the minor leagues, and maybe a lot of the stories are in the minor leagues. They got the breakdown, but. Um, and there were a few that I just didn't have time. As it is, as a comedy, it's long enough. Um, because usually your comedies are like an hour and a half. This was, this is bordering on about an hour fifty. And um, but I think it moves quickly. And um, it did everything, as I said, Ricky. It did everything I wanted it to do. And uh, uh, if I ever have an opportunity to do another one, um, I'll know where to. The baseball scenes are probably the worst part about that. And next time. Next time, if I ever get fortunate enough to do another one, the baseball scenes will be better. <laughs> but, but other than that, just the, the satirical uh, vignette 
one, Bo Keister, ironically, we were talking about Remember the Titans. He was in Remember the Titans. And uh, and then uh, the, the, I guess we had about 80 actors of the 215 that we auditioned in New York. And James Suttles, the director, was just outstanding. His temperament was just, I thought, uh, applaudable because let's say they sent somebody, an agency sent you somebody that you wondered how they, why they sent this person because they, they're not an actor. They're, they're, and, and, but James was so good at it that if they were, if they shouldn't have been there, James would, and they would say whatever they say and it was not very good. And James would say something like, well, well, give me a little bit of this or give me a little bit of that just so they could leave with some ego intact. And I, I, I thought that was just really a sweet thing for James to do. Um, but yeah, it, it was fun. It was fun. Should have had two. <laughs> the guy, well, I don't know if I should go into this, but we actually, because we had to replicate some sexual-like scenes, we we actually had to um, uh, hire a couple of um, I don't want to say soft adult actresses, but um, people who were used to being in in, in scenes that were a little more uh, adult themes. Yes. yes. A little more explicit, yeah. And they were great. Everybody's great. The actors, I, I couldn't have thanked them enough. They were they were tremendous. And, and the kind of the Law and Order type actors, in fact, we had uh, some people who had been in Law and Order and uh, in other movies as well. So uh, you'd be surprised at the, the talent uh, that is here that uh, that's accessible. And Justin Grace, one of the lead actors, probably the lead actor I had known for a while, and I knew that he could mimic batting stances, so I wrote that in for Justin. And Justin was in um, what is it, Blue Bloods? Is that the Tom Selleck? Um, yeah. Show? yeah. Yeah. Justin was in, um, I think the, I don't know how many last year, but I, he was in the final show and maybe some shows leading up to that. Uh, Jack Mulcahy, another lead actor, was in Porky's and Brothers McMullen. Uh, Maddie Rochester, I, I talked about Law and Order. Uh, she was in that. Gabe Hernandez has been in Law and Order and a few other um, movies as well. Uh, he was in St. Vincent. Um, so you can get some quality. I told you about Bo Keister being in Remember the Titans. So you can mm-hmm. get some quality actors um, because actors like to act. And you'd be surprised if you could get. It's it's a really funny film. And the, the, the vignettes are... Uh, as you said, it really keeps the, the the film moving along. Ever how long it is, it uh, it flies by pretty quickly. The, the vignettes are they all based on uh, the true events, or are any of those the uh, the, the the product of uh, a, a demented imagination? Um, I have that too. I uh, thank you for alluding to it. <laughs> um, I um, all of them are pretty much based on something that happened the very last one the funeral home one probably based a little less than most although the setting is is comes from something that actually happened um the the end of it is, well unless <laughs> really, really yeah. don't want to give it away but if the end away. of it happened really then i'm really in trouble but uh, <laughs> but that's probably the one that i embellished uh, the most but all the other ones some of them are like right Right to the T of actually how it happened, uh, because as I said, four of our minds. <laughs> I knew those. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that you and I have talked about in the past, and that uh, 
uh, I think that maybe some people might miss is is you you weave some some social commentary in, in there as well. It's not all just uh, uh, laughs and and that kind of thing. Uh, and, and I think that you did it really you did it really well. It's not ham fisted, but it still is 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 there in the film. Is that something that was important to you as well? Yes, yes, and, and the scene, uh, the Native American scene, uh, was really important, and and unfortunately, that was my big day to speak, and we had 16-hour days, Ricky, and I was just so beaten, so tired, I didn't even have time to go over my lines, and here, I wrote the screenplay, and I can't remember my lines, <laughs> <laughs> so I struggled with that that day, and I thought, oh, geez, I'm not going to be in any more movies, but it, it turned out okay, we edited fairly well, and, and that was the one where I think I... I, that was more of me saying something um, and just leaving it out there for you. And, and um, it's kind of hard to disagree with it. it you, you may think, okay, well, we're, um, you may want to gloss over it or look over it, and I've talked to people about it, and there's really not the, anything they can come back to me with. It. There's no rebuttal uh, there for them. So I, But I, I think I would have only done that if I felt very strongly about something. And and felt that I could cover uh, the debate very well, so I, I did, and that was probably the biggest part of the, the satire that uh, that I wanted to say, and a couple other things I tried to sneak in, a little education here or there um, about the movie theaters uh, back in the day, and and uh, about the movie Giant that I talked about. Some mm-hmm. of that is watching too much Turner Classic Movies, probably, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and, and some observations about the role of the media as well, I think. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I beat up the media. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder why I'm not getting any PR from this. You're, you're still, <laughs> Thank you, Ray. Yeah. Thank you for giving me some. You're still yeah. pissed off that they weren't on that plane. So you're going to take a pound of flesh 30 years later is what happened. I, you know, I, and I'll tell you this. If you see this movie, and, and again, I, I, I can't recommend it more highly. It gets a, I'm not... Uh, uh, the, the Richard Roper or uh, you know whoever is the, at the movies now that Siskel and Ebert are gone, but it definitely gets a thumbs up from me. And and I can promise you this: you will never hear the song uh, "You Made Me So Very Happy" the same way again. Okay, so know that going in, that song is going to be changed for you forever if you watch this movie. In the movie. Yeah. yeah. And um, oh god, uh, um, O'Brien. I was feeling for the slap after about 15 of them. <laughs> <It's> just, 
so then I had to make sure that I wasn't feeling for the slap anymore. So, um, so it, it uh, but it was, it was fun. It was, it was funny. She was great. They, they were, uh, it was just a, I, I, I heard people tell uh, James, uh, the director, that that's the most fun they've had on a set uh, uh, of all of their uh, acting credits. And so it, it was, it was good. It was fun. It was fun. And, I couldn't. I would love to do another one. Uh, I just have to. I just have to raise a little bit more money this time because uh, the people in charge of the money think that uh, baseball players always. If you're 35 years or younger, you think of baseball players always making our athletes in general always making multi million dollars. And I had to tell them, no, I didn't make multi million dollars. <laughs> My first salary was twenty one thousand. Yeah, and I was during the double-digit inflation days of the late 1970s. Let me tell you how far that didn't go. It took me it took me three years before I made enough money in salary that I didn't have to find income in the offseason. And now the minimum salary is 507 500 So you figure if you're in your early 20s and after taxes you're taking home eh, close to 400000 then you can probably make a living off that. Granted, you have expenses that other people don't have probably, but... Uh, you can make a living off it. There's no way you can make a living off $18,000 after taxes. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it used to be that that was it. I mean, getting guys worked in the off season. Yeah. That, yeah. Was, sta- oh, that yeah. was standard for decades in baseball. When I wasn't going back to college to finish, I, I played winter ball in uh, Valencia, Venezuela. loved it. It was a great, great time and, and uh, really enjoyed it. But that was income for me. That was, thank you very much. And, um, and it's just it's hard to find those jobs unless you're unless you're in town a lot to find work. So yeah, it, it was uh, it wasn't. But they kind of spent the money like yeah, okay, he's an athlete. He made money back then. No, 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 no. No, no you need to know uh, the timeline of my career. I played during the yeah. Carter administration. <laughs> uh, That's right. I guess every movie goes over budget, but I, I for some reason I said this is what I have right here. Well, the, the movie is Reunion 108, and, and you said available on Amazon. Uh, yeah, the book is still up as well, both on Amazon, and um, I appreciate you mentioning it. Absolutely. The book is a year in pinstripes and then some. If you're a baseball fan, uh, and I'm sure, I'm sure you are, you're listening to this, and you've got lots of other friends who are baseball fans, uh, it's certainly going to be something that they're going to enjoy. You've done the movie. You've 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 written the book. Uh, what what's the next uh, arena to conquer here? Uh, the next one, Ricky, is to to have the the guts to go to an open mic stand up for my first uh, delivery. Your first the first stand up gig. Yeah, my first stand up gig. Yeah. But it's an open mic, so it's I've I've been there watching other people, and I I think I can. So this is coming up. You're you're going on. I mean, by the time that people listen to this, you'll have already you'll have already done this. But as we speak, you're you're uh, you're like four days away from uh, something that uh, a, a lot of us ha- have thought about, but few have uh, the courage to endeavor. Uh, yes, and I'm not sure. Once they call my name and hand me the mic, I'm not sure where that's going. Um, but <laughs> it's, it's like it's like the movie. I've got to do it. I just it's one of those things. I've got to do it before before either I, I go crazy or I don't want to leave and, and retire somewhere where I don't have the opportunity to do it. So I'm going to do it. It's probably going to be a lot like um, the 
I do now. I've seen the, I've seen the movie. I I think of you as NC seventeen rated. Of course, I know you a little bit, so I, you know we've had conversations. So I definitely I definitely understand what's going on. Yeah, I, I want to be a sociology professor. <laughs> well, that's the beautiful thing about being a sociology professor is I can talk about anything and then claim that it's just in the interest of education. So <laughs> it's perfect. It's a perfect. Well, to get a compliment from you, uh, living in the Chicago area, about the, the, the movie with all the um, the um, history of Chicago uh, movie critics there, I, I, that's pretty good. I, I wanted to thank you for that. Well, that's it. I mean, you know, Ebert, Ebert's gone, so I'm carrying the banner now, and yeah. I'm I'm saying that uh, it's got my endorsement. So l- l- listen, Billy, I I can't thank you enough for coming on. Uh, again, the movie Reunion 108, the book, A Year in Pinstripes, and then some. And uh, next time you come on, we'll be promoting all your comedy gigs, probably. They, you know, <laughs> you'll be at the Laugh Shack and the, you know, er- er- everywhere else. You'll have a whole. Second City. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right, man. Well, listen. Good luck with the uh, the stand up. I'll have to uh, I'll have to get a report from you after it's over. And uh, well, now that I've announced it, I really have to. You, you have to go through with it now, because yeah, the, the next time you're on, you can't say I got cold feet. You know, I, so uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and uh, I'll be talking to you. Ricky, I appreciate it. Good to talk to you. All right, brother. My thanks again to Billy Sample for being my guest today. Billy's been a a great supporter of my work here at Super 70 Sports, and also of the book that I have that's in progress. So it was just a pleasure to have him on today. And make sure to get over to at Super 70 Sports, where we're going to be giving away an autographed copy signed by the man himself of his new book, A Year in Pinstripes, and then some. Retweet my post on the Twitter feed, and you're going to be entered to win. So uh, pretty darn cool. And also, don't forget to check out Billy's movie, Reunion 108. You know, there's 108 stitches on a baseball, and that's where the title uh, of the film came from. But you may not want to watch that one with your parents, okay? Billy's not kidding. It's a a strong R. So uh, unless you've got really cool parents, in which case, have at it. My guest next week. And I do mean next week, by the way. We've got to pick up the pace here in 2017 with the Super 70 Sports Podcast. My guest next week to wrap up the month of March is a former Major League All-Star, a two-time Gold Glove winner, and I'm just going to lay it out on the table here for you guys. I think he was robbed of the Cy Young Award in 1980 in the American League. Mike Norris joins me on the podcast next week, and... You know, I'll have to ask him about Billy Martin. That Oakland A staff was remarkable. Billy Martin was uh, not utilizing his bullpen in uh, Tony LaRusso-like fashion. Let's put it that way. That A's team had 94 complete games in 1980. And to give you a point of reference for that, there were 83 complete games in the major leagues in 2016. Total between all 30 teams. Are you kidding me? And, and Mike had 24 complete games by himself. That's as many as Clayton Kershaw has in his entire career. All right, so you get the idea. So don't miss Mike Norris next week. And remember to never miss an episode of the Super 70 Sports Podcast.